Welcome back everyone. My name's Hattie. If you haven't been here already, if you have, welcome back. So nice to have you here listening. Today is an episode with me on my own speaking to Catherine Williams, who is a flautist and also the co-author of the ISM's recent study, Dignity at Work 2. We speak about the impact of the study on Catherine, how she processed all the information, any surprises that came up through looking over the information, what the key findings were, and then we also go on to have the most brilliant discussion, um, and Catherine shares some really moving details about her life as a single parent while she was also studying for her master's at the Royal Northern College of Music. It really highlights some of the realities of musicians that maybe we don't consider and Catherine is really honest about the ways in which she tried to hide the struggle she was going through. So yeah, I'm really thrilled to be presenting this episode for you today and huge thank you to Catherine. It's taken us a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a bit of a while uh, to get this out. Context being that I think it was like the 12th of December when we recorded this because I remember it had been that day that snowed or maybe it was yeah, it was I think it was the 12th of December. So oopsie one to miss a few and all these months have gone past but I don't think it matters because this conversation is so brilliant and she is a wonderful speaker so yes I hand over to my chat far too long ago with Catherine Williams. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today over the beautiful Zoom, which feels like we haven't done this for a while, actually. I'm not very, I've forgotten how to work everything, but how are you? I'm okay. Thank you very much. I am uh, Zooming you from the rolling uh, ice-topped hills of Rossendale. I think we have very different views of the world right now. Yeah. (laughs) I'm assuming. I I have some ice-topped um south london houses though which has been okay pretty charming as well i know thank you so much for coming to talk and in what i know is quite a busy time anyway with the addition of you being pregnant and also having a lot on with this report and everything but anytime hattie (laughs) (laughs) can you let us know you know uh, your elevator pitch about yourself no elevator pitch oh no oh well i'm a versatile um flute player recording artist and researcher there you go you do sound so cool oh my god keep going keep going a bit more (laughs) up to the next floor (laughs) (laughs) i am a freelance flute player and have been for the past oh 11 years or so studied at the royal northern college of music just to satisfy your listeners' curiosity, where is her accent from? Which I can't seem to get away from. Mm. Uh, It is a transatlantic accent. I moved here from Ohio Mm. 16 years ago. So I'm nearly to the halfway point where I've lived longer here than I did there, which is a crazy thought. Thought I would just finish up an undergrad degree and then go back. And here I still am. Wow. 
gathered three such three degrees from the RNCM. <laughs> yeah, I got really into like contemporary music there. And that's that's a really big part of my work is collaborative composition and new music and commissioning pieces. So I just like to do a bit of everything, really, a bit of orchestra stuff when, as and when someone's ill enough to call me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, which is quite a, quite but, a um, lot. <laughs> yeah, you never know. It's, it's always pretty last minute. But um, and then the research stuff came out of um, doing a PhD at Huddersfield University, which I finished two years ago. And that was on um, the visibility of breathing. It stemmed from a project where I commissioned over 100 pieces that are limited to a single breath which was a, a way to focus both the composer's um, work and me as a performer as is something that we don't often think about is what the performer's body is doing behind the instrument, mm. what limitations they might have. Um, and it was started because I had a really bad time with my sinuses for a number of years. It meant I couldn't actually breathe through my nose at all, completely blocked, and I have severe asthma. So I had to find all kinds of funny ways to play the flute because at the same time I was a single parent to a toddler so the pressure was was on to make it work somehow um I did find some ways to build up work which was a lot of that was doing uh, live music now and going into really fun settings um like museums and hospitals and prisons so my flute or a little trolley of instruments dressing up as a flute as well dressing up as a flute which I've got a little earlier show early years show now where I get to wear <laughs> a full body flute costume which is just my dream you do have to go on I think it's on Twitter or is it on is there a picture of it on Instagram yeah I think it's both. absolutely hilarious um what was the longest commissioned piece for one breath so the longest that I have to sustain a single breath is two minutes and 20 seconds or thereabouts it's the hardest one wow by far it's did very make, difficult did you make it all the way through yep wowza yep but i <laughs> obviously that's still not very long for like a concert is <laughs> two guess. minutes and 20 yeah. seconds so like if i'm doing a concert where i have to play like 60 or more mm. of these pieces in one in one little go I've got to be very careful how I program them. Yeah. So I would do the two, two and a half minute one. And then I have a piece that like is a film. So then I can have a little break to uh, <laughs> regain. The shortest one is like two seconds. <laughs> Whoever wrote that, Angel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so coming back to the work you're doing at the moment with the ISM, can you talk us through like why they got you on board? and sort of the research. So the research I was doing was all about breathing and the environment mm. and, and that kind of thing. And that twinned perfectly with a Twitter call out that came out at the very start of lockdown by the ISM saying they were looking for a PhD researcher to do a global literature review on aerosol transmission. And I thought, well, I'm into air and I'm researching. I've got an institutional login. So, <laughs> so um, very, uh, grateful to have gotten that work so that ended up being two global literature reviews that they published 2020. Oh, a few months later I came on board with them as a freelancer to do all of their like Brexit research because that was at the time of the free trade agreement and, and all that stuff happening over Christmas um, 2020. 
And then I had a baby and then this job came up, which is a research and policy officer in um, equality, diversity and inclusion, which is brilliant for me because it's um, from home and it's flexible and I can still do a bit of my freelancing and it's super interesting. So I'm really enjoying it. I started that back in March and um, Deborah, the CEO, told me that my first job would be to revisit the dignity at work research that they undertook in 2018. Their plan was always to do a survey and a report again four years later to see if there'd been any cultural change since that report came out. Mm. So in, 20, uh, in 2017, in the wake of the Me Too movement, they began to receive a lot of calls from predominantly female members wanting to talk about things that had happened to them um, at work. And that year, the legal team at the ISN saw a tripling of cases that were to do with workplace discrimination. Wow. So that led to this, uh, two, two surveys that they did. One was a workplace survey, so similar to the one that, that just happened, trying to investigate how, how widespread is this problem um, it, and it's something that we all kind of, as musicians, we might say, oh, yeah, it's terrible. Everyone I know has had a problem. Mm. But you need the research and you need the data to back it all up and actually make a meaningful campaign off the back of it. They did a survey around higher education institutions that was including music, dance and drama. So that was called Dignity and Study. Mm. Fairly unsurprisingly, it found that this was a widespread problem um, that was pretty much just as bad in training as it was in the profession. So that, yes, that was my job four years later is to design the survey and get as many responses as possible, which we got 660 in about a five week period, which I think is really good. Mm. And then spend the summer analyzing it. Yeah, I'm really interested because we spoke first just before, well, whilst the survey was out and people were responding and you were kind of waiting for all the data and, and everything to come back. Mm -hmm. How was that process of, you know, the, the survey closing and just having all of this data to go through and everything? How was that process? Like, how did you go about looking through it all and writing it up? Yeah, I think I, I had to take quite a measured approach because there was so much to go through and there's also so many different ways of looking at it uh, of filtering through the results and so I took a few weeks just reading through everything and then trying to sort of work out some rough categories of what was coming through mm. um, so there were 660 like usable responses and but we also had several open comment boxes where people could could choose to share more information about what happened or about the workplace scenario where it happened or, or any other context that they wanted to share. And it was all anonymous. And there were like well over a thousand comments for that. So there was a lot so, to go yeah. through. I, I used a lot of paper. I, I just couldn't do it all on a screen. Mm. So I, I printed it all out. So I loved the feel of it and different, different piles of paper, many different highlighter colors and um, a spreadsheet, <laughs> start putting things in. 
but also like I said I was working from home so my only mm. contact with other people who knew what, what I was doing like at work was maybe once a week or every couple of weeks I was grateful that we had got a puppy at the around, around the same time that Aww. was really comforting because you can't um work with data like that and not be affected by it so I had yeah. to make sure that I was sort of taking breaks regularly and chatting with my family about it and stuff like that hmm. and I mean we're going to probably go on a bit to talk about your experience you know as a I mean you know discrimination in the freelance world and as a flautist and everything but how did it feel? I guess it makes sense to be printing these things out because it is someone's experience and to have it on a screen is quite faceless, I guess. So like, I think that makes sense. Like I can imagine myself wanting to do the same thing, but was there something that particularly stood out to you or moved you the most in what you read from these responses? Yeah, a lot of the themes were just, well, mainly from, mainly from women who came through as experiencing 78% of the discrimination described in the report. It just kind of all gathered as like one kind of, in my head when I was reading it, I could hear like lots of women's voices saying these things at the same time. Oh, wow. It was like yeah. quite, quite a full experience actually. I think everyone has their own experience of reading to themselves or reading aloud where sometimes you can hear it in your head or, I mean, that's what I experience. I can hear yeah, a voice yeah. in my head when I'm reading. And to me, the voice was just like a lot of women saying, you know, I'm never going to get booked again. Um, I'm being pregnant was amazing, but it meant I'm never going to have the same career or I was told I shouldn't do this. Or, you know, what I found was all these women's voice just, voices just getting smaller and smaller and smaller through these comments mm. of like, oh, I, I shouldn't dress like that. But I've told I don't want to dress like that. But I've told if I don't, then I won't be booked. All these different ways of controlling what they want to do which is just play music or work in a studio or um work in publishing or or anything like that it's just um all these different ways that that people are unable to pursue the career that they want mm -hmm. or feel safe within their career because i suppose to a certain extent you could have anticipated the response it's yeah. not a huge surprise in some ways, but was there an element to the survey that was a surprise to you when you were reading or, or from the data that you received? Yeah, I, I think there are a few things like, um, you know, I've been a freelancer for a long time. I've experienced things. I know a lot of people who have. In all the work I've ever done in 11 years, I've never received one policy document that outlines the organization's policy on or stance on sexual harassment in the workplace or where what to do if you don't, if you feel you've been treated badly while working for us. Never, nothing. So not that surprise, but if you actually put it into the numbers, 94% of freelancers who experienced discrimination, there was no one to go to, or there's no clear guidance of what to do. Mm. I mean, <laughs> just, I think putting numbers on the things that you feel like you know already is very, very powerful. But then also people who um, did report officially who were perhaps in more traditional employment, the majority of them still had no action taken. Really? Like only 10% had a settlement at the end of 
at the end of the because really that's what that's what's going to happen mm. like we're talking about legality and we're talking about settlements that's what that's what all this stuff can lead to is maybe an apology um hopefully a cultural change it's it's going through that the legal system and getting um a, a settlement which is still not enough to recover from discrimination which is why i thought it's really important to talk about the more personal uh, recovery from experiencing things like like that what does it mean now going forward to have a number behind that to be able to say this is the issue it's huge how do you take that forward now knowing that sort of data so the data fed into the recommendations that we've made there so there's two sets there's one set for the government and then there's a set for the music sector and the thing about freelancers it goes both it goes into both sets so freelancers are so vulnerable uh the gaps in legislation that mean that they often don't have any legal protections or it's very murky whether they're classed as a worker or self purely self-employed there's also no protections currently around third-party harassment although there is a there is a new bill that might be coming into law next year which would be very exciting yeah so with with the government we're we're lobbying to to amend the equality act to to, to clearly define freelancers or workers there are there, there's been recommendations made by the women and equality select committee back in 2018 and these haven't been implemented yet and that includes a mandatory preventative duty on employers the thing is they use the word employee so it's very confusing although the word employee technically does mean worker so if you're say um contracted personally to do the work then you're a worker but often organizations don't quite understand mm. uh what their obligations are so we're hoping that these um recommendations actually get some proper parliamentary time and attention but then for the sector there's a lot that can be done like immediately policies that get sent to everybody whether they're employed or self-employed coming in for a three-hour session a one-off mm. or if they're in every week and we can really look to other sectors who are doing really good work on making policies there's the faucet society that have a sexual harassment in the workplace toolkit and there's also uh uk hospitality which has uh, a lot of um similarities i think with the music mm. industry in that it's quite client facing and it's casual and it's on quite late hours and things but they've got a template where you can make your own policy and what i did in the report was just simply swap were a few words out in the in the um, example just like just say orchestra or rehearsal or concert instead of the words in the hospitality sector document and it actually works really well let's say one of your friends gets an arts council grant well which is <laughs> even more impressive Funny than joke. ever haha <laughs> <laughs> which means that they can then hire freelancers to do mm. whatever project it is that they've been awarded this money for. There's nothing in place for those people who are like the secondary recipients of this money. 
So if they're not being paid on time or the workplace isn't feeling safe, there's nothing for them to, there's no one for them to go to with the, mm-hmm. with the funder. So we're trying mm-hmm. to encourage some discussion around how some protections can be put in place in um, grant award agreements because we were just talking about the vulnerability of the majority freelance who work in the music sector. Well, why are they so vulnerable? There's a lack of legislation that protects them. They might not understand their rights. The organizations who pay them to do some work don't understand their obligations. But also it's such a, it's such a closed world. If you get known as the one who complains, you're not going to get asked back and there's nothing protecting you from victimization. You're not owed anything. And you know, you think about the leveling of anxiety if you get asked, say, into an orchestra for the first time. Oh my God, am I meant to offer to pay for the teas? Do I have to go for a beer? I don't like drinking. Um, am I talking too much, too little? Am I too friendly? Oh, and then you have to play your part perfectly, obviously. Like that's almost the easiest part. I always find the social bit of that just so stressful. And then if you know, if you've done a good, if you've done well enough, you get another booking. Mm-hmm. But also someone might not be ill for a couple of years. They might not meet you. There's just no, there's yeah. no way and heaven forbid something happens where you feel very awkward or or even worse you know you have some you know someone says some inappropriate things to you based on what you're wearing or or something like that um you know go and tell the fixer we're just making more work for them they just just, they just want to everyone just wants to do their do their job and go home you know in terms of you writing this report as a freelancer are with an understanding of what it means and like what that, what this whole life entails and the potential discrimination you can come up against. Can you talk about maybe how your own experiences align with what you found in the report or maybe some of the discrimination that you experienced yourself? maybe compared to um, a good number of the comments that I, I, we had, I feel like I've come out somehow as luckier <laughs> than mm. others and that the more sinister things I've experienced in my life, um, they haven't been at work. So although I have had some pretty horrendous things happen, they're not really things that I attach to um, going out and freelancing Mm. there have been things like text messages um like during work from people in the same workplace who are in a position of you know have a full full full-time position um and I would just you know just leave it just sort of oh that's annoying but what do you do um and things like being mansplained too, <laughs> uh, or you know, perhaps not being seen as someone with with the authority that I know that I do actually have. It's not just about what I've experienced; it's what you've uh, if, you, if you've witnessed things happening and weren't sure what mm. to do. That's that's another 
that's another part of all of this, I think, as well. In terms of as well, I think a big part of what we see or maybe what's not discussed enough is becoming a parent as a musician as well. Mm. And I remember you speaking about, was it your master's that you were pregnant whilst you were studying? Was it your master's or your undergrad? Well, I had a baby between my undergrad and my master's and I started the master's when my daughter was one. Okay. Um, Like on my own, totally on my own. Many younger people might not understand the commitment that takes. And also then there's this added thing of, I'm hearing a lot of people not being booked because they're not taken seriously because of their because they're pregnant. Can you talk about, you know, facing that as a parent and out of the report, maybe anything that you think could protect parents specifically mm. or pregnant people? It was 11 years ago. I feel like things have changed a lot more, a lot since then. There's a lot more dialogue going on about how to support young parents, but I was 23. Um, my family was in the States. I was in um, a very tricky personal situation where I couldn't just take her home and maybe, you know, get support from my family and start my career in the States. I had to stay here. And also, like, I look back and I think, how the hell did I do that? I don't know. I just um, took out huge American student loans that I'll probably never pay back so that we could live somewhere. And um, I was told right away, the biggest impression I had um, about how to actually start, you know, working as a parent was I was trying to explain that I had just moved to back to Manchester with my daughter and I hadn't found a nursery yet or any any like babysitters yet but I was working on it and I was asked to do this like weekend long orchestral project uh, at college and I was like oh um can I maybe do the next one I don't want to know what your problems are you just have to say yes and turn up yeah so that's just Basically what I tried doing is I tried to make it look very easy. Try not to complain. I said yes to everything. Actually, a lot of singers at college um, signed up to want to babysit so I could like afford a few pounds an hour, like so I could go to lectures. And so my daughter was like so fabulous, like strutting down the (laughs) refectory and all that with these amazing, like lovely students who just wanted to hang out with her for a few hours and and that was really nice and then you know did find a nursery but it's not just about the nursery hours because our rehearsals are like (laughs) well till half five but pick up is five and then there's a concert at 7 30 which is bedtime so who can do bedtime what babysitter can cook do I need to get a ready meal or (laughs) Mm. or can this can I trust this person to use the microwave that's something that was very very hard because it was just me there's no one else helping me vet you know childcare. and luckily there wasn't weren't too many like situations but um definitely felt a lot of guilt and uncertainty like have I made the right choice I feel like I'm I'm too little to be doing all this Mm. it's just me I don't know uh just juggling I suppose but also that feeling that I had to make it all look pretty effortless like I see mm. people now 
who said, yes, you always seem so happy when you brought your daughter into college. <laughs> like um, childcare fell through. So, and I wanted to audition for a young artist program. And I had to like beg someone to sit with her so I could just go and play. But then like, I was just so stressed. Like I was just playing and like trying not to cry. Like, it's fine, it's fine. I'm just gonna try and play my flute. <laughs> mm. If there are any young parents out there who need some advice, uh, there's a lot more out there. You know, it's the Pippa campaign, the Parents in Performing Arts, who mm. have recently released a, a really great research report that, again, quantifies how um, parents are often, and carers are penalized for, for their caring responsibilities. In terms of that being, I guess, discrimination and coming into the report, you know, is there anything sort of legislatively? Unfortunately <laughs> not, because, you know, I've had to learn, like, discrimination is actually an umbrella term for mm. harassment, direct discrimination, indirect discrimination. Actually, maybe it was indirect discrimination. That's like policies or ways of working that dis end up discriminating against you for under the nine protected characteristics of the Equality Act. So that could be age, disability, gender reassignment, pregnancy, maternity, but the pregnancy maternity only goes up to, I think is it 26 weeks oh, um, after having a baby. So for me having a one-year-old and being discriminated against by various working practices. I don't think there's really much I could do. Mm. It's just yeah. not fair, you know, no. it's, just not, it's just not cool, but I don't think there's much more I could have done. Yeah, I think that's just the kind of expectation that if you're in that situation, there must be a partner to take care of your child, or there must be a, a parent, you know, a grandparent there, just seamlessly able to slot into your life. But it's yeah, like, that's yeah. Not the just being asked things like that, like, well, can't she just go to her dad? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> During the masters, my mum did come over once per year for okay. two or three weeks when I had like a particularly busy time. So she would just um, cook, clean, do the nursery run. Oh my god, the amount of progress I made in two weeks was oh, like my whole wow. year of progress. I could wake up and go practice in the morning mm. and come home and there'd be food I wouldn't have to go and you Get know worry nap. about oh nappies yeah. wipes snacks uh play dates that's uh, you know all these things the the yeah the progress would just zoom up and then of course that's when I was really getting ill with the sinuses which has a lot to do with the stress as well I think and I even mm. got hospitalized for viral meningitis so my first nights away from my daughter were because I was hospitalized for being so stressed. It's really important, I think, as well, for me to hear as someone, you know, who doesn't have caring responsibility, you kind of, you take it for granted so easily how many people have to do everything I do whilst also caring for someone else. Um, but, you know, as now you're pregnant with your third child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How you kind of managed that now as a freelancer, like being a parent? Well, now I do have a partner. <laughs> so that definitely helps things a ton. 
And um, he's also a musician, so he really gets it. And actually, we love working together. Oh, which is like really sweet. Um, but it has been it has been very difficult um, having, especially a very little one. So mm. obviously, my daughter is almost twelve, so she's very like just about self sufficient. But we've got a nearly two year old, and we you know we tried to teach what we did. We achieved teaching a course at Dardington last summer when he was six months old. Wow. Then we're actually going to do the same next, this coming summer with a two and a half year old and a new six month old. Oh my God. <laughs> because we had a big conversation like, should I just stay home in the summer and then I can have the kids and you could do the course? And we thought, no, we really want to work together. We have to yeah. just find a way to make it work. And and maybe be more open about, first of all, how hard it is, but how rewarding it is, and how you actually make it work on a practical level. And that's part of the, the PIPA work that's happening, is, is how, how can organizations make it possible for people who have caring responsibilities to turn up and do their work. And the work they want to do as well, and not having to compromise and be like, oh no, we shouldn't both go because what will it mean? It's like there should be things in place to mean that you can both work together and fulfill all that. Well, with the, I mean, it's, it's, it's still an extremely un, um, unequal society, especially when you know, the mom normally takes a step back mm. and the career goes down. You know, in order for there to be equality, that might mean the men need to take a bit of a step back. Mm-hmm when I play that scenario out in my head about not going so I could be home, I felt so sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to feel, I, when I was on my own with my daughter, I would just often feel just so left out. Yeah. There's so many programs I could never go on and the work I'm every bit professional work I'm doing or I have ever done is been with her. And so like, I'm kind of, I'm doing it in spite of, in spite of the odds. Um, would it have been easier to just get like a law conversion degree or something? Oh my gosh. I get a little job. I don't know, maybe in the short term, but yeah. why is it so hard to do this job? And it's not just exclusive for people who have kids. Like it is extremely difficult. There's like, you know, the there's the work-life balance, there's very little of that, there's the planning, there's the childcare, there's the often quite low pay or mm. being paid really late. Um, scarcity, I do I do think that work definitely has not picked up yeah. um, with COVID. And then we have Brexit as an issue, which could be a contributor to the levels of discrimination actually climbing in, from the survey. It's that much harder to get work that you're definitely not gonna complain if you get oh yeah if you get work you're just gonna you just need it so badly why would you um why would you report anything what are you are you and the ism hoping that you know the next year what does your campaigning maybe look like what are the the goals and aims for the next sort of year or so well hopefully we will gather lots of signatures for this open letter which will give it a lot more impact. Hopefully we'll get some kind of response. 
we would love to get some timeline from the government um, as to when these issues will get some proper attention and keep going for it if they, well, no matter what. Absolutely, um, yeah. Just relentlessly um, highlight how precarious the situation is. And it's also working with uh, organizations that have the power to make these changes that will trickle down. So that includes um, membership organizations um, having a code of practice, hmm. code of conduct, more organizations signing the ISM MU code of practice that was established in 2018. We've got over 140 organizations that have signed it. And so we need even more stepping up, saying what's actually clearly defining the behaviors that are unacceptable. Yeah. So I think a lot of times it's easy to just say, oh, that's discrimination, where what you really need is a very clear like index of what mm. types there can be, because there can be so many different types. Mm. And, and it could be that people are doing it and maybe don't realize. Mm. Yeah, I, I do think people are talking about their experiences more. I feel like they had, you know, the, the, there's been a lot more progress in the film and television industry since 2017. I don't really think the music has had their proper Me Too movement. No. And I wonder what it would take yeah. for that to become, for that wall to come down. And it's not just, it's not just the big stars. I think the thing that we keep thinking about at the ISM is what about the wedding band? Scratch wedding band that drives hours to the toll to mm. make 50 pounds playing for an evening. You have to keep thinking about the majority of musicians and the way that they work and what happens if an audience member harasses them or, or what if two members of the band have an issue like what would you actually do mm. and so um and also i think it's for students uh finishing their uh, preparing a talk to give to the rncm student union on mm-hmm. international women's day oh cool um which will be kind of aimed at final year students or students who are just about to go into the profession to understand what their rights are and we'll have the head of legal services there as well so he'll he'll make it sound very very smart Uh. so I'll have like the the ground experience of the different situations you'll get into in your first few years out um and he'll have the things to back it up but the ISM has got um six lawyers that work for them and, and they take on um, over 1,600 cases a year on behalf of members, which includes unpaid fees and, and things like that, but also a lot of workplace discrimination. So this, the advice is always there. Hmm. And there's always um, signposting to organizations that can help if, if it's... Uh, well, because at the end of the day, it's, it's not all just about the legal thing, hmm. about sorting out legally. At the end of the day, you're still there as a person who's experienced some horrible stuff. You've got to pick yourself up again and and try and keep going. And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And sort of how long will the impact of that last? Because the impact of your experience on your work, you know, could be 
if you don't get it sorted or don't have the adequate help you know it could go on for years feeling trauma or, or yeah uh, actually a big part of my PhD research was about the um physiological impact of trauma on performers wow. about how um it could deteriorate deteriorate is that the right way <laughs> I feel like I there was so. too many R's I think so deteriorate your self-trust mm. and that has a really close connection with like performance anxiety um which can be its own issue but if you also have um some triggers for trauma they can they can happen at the same time and they your brain doesn't know what to do and so you go into that fight or flight mode that obviously could lead into some not very enjoyable performance experience or audition experiences mm. and then that just erodes your um self-belief and, and ability to keep going and so you could get a lot of people just ending up ending up just quitting or mm. going to do something else or turning to substances perhaps to, to yeah. ease that um that um that pain i couldn't stand the sound of um people exercising at the gym because it it triggered memories for me and um and so i made a piece where i had to work out for 18 months with a personal trainer and play the piccolo at the same time oh to wow to try and work on um building up both my my body strength but also that relationship with my instrument and how how they were connected and so the pieces where i exercise while playing the piccolo for 20 minutes in front of the audience oh my god <laughs> exercise you put yourself through it catherine yeah well <laughs> i suppose so but I think that's what I like to do is um, just focus so intensely on one thing until it gets yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I want to know everything about it. So I really enjoy, I really enjoy um, getting to learn so much about employment law and yeah, uh, and all this stuff surrounding discrimination at, at, in workplaces. Thank you so, so much for your time and for sharing your story with us and everything and for writing this incredible report, which is now available for people to read. And you can sign up for the campaign. So we've come up with a hashtag dignity two, as in the number two work oh gosh. So and keep updated with all the things that we're doing. Awesome. Thank you so, so much, Catherine. Pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. Lovely talking to you as well. Yay. And to your Yay. little doggy. Woohoo. And Roxy. She's been so good. She's been so good.